Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. The world's most valuable resource is no longer oil, but data. So can you be certain that no one in your organization has uploaded an API key, PII, health data, or proprietary source code to the cloud? Are your log files scrubbed of sensitive information? Listen later in the show to find out how OpenRaven can discover, classify, and alert you when your cloud data is at risk. Episode 102, recorded on January 27th, 2020. The Cloud Pod is not okay. Good evening, Jonathan, Peter, and Ryan. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's a Wednesday. It's midweek. It's the end of January. It's, it could be better, <laughs> but it's all right. It's not a never-ending week like last week, but it's it's a close second. Yeah, I mean, last week was that short week with MLK, and a week dragged on too. I think I think just the end <laughs> of January, I'm just tired and want to be over already. Yeah, it's cold. It's dark. I want summer. It's cold. It's colder here. Is it? Ooh. Yes. When you have to think about putting your jacket and your gloves and your boots on in order to go get the trash cans out of the driveway, it's cold. Yeah, that's pretty cold. <laughs> we had a uh, atmospheric river here, Peter. Oh, last nice. Night. Yeah, so we had the, the torrential downpours with wind, and then that is, you know, we have the mini river now. I guess that's a stream uh, after the river <laughs> that came through last night. So it's been raining all day and cold and wet. And, you know, California loves the rain because we don't ever get it. Except for the drivers don't, but uh, I guess that's just how it works. Because uh, I was on the freeway yesterday with somebody from California, clearly, because they were going 45 on a 60. And all I can think is the Batman quote, I was born in the rain in Seattle. <laughs> 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 People are all crazy. Please find the gas pedal. And you have to slow it down. I mean, you don't have to go your normal 90 miles an hour that you do in California. But, you know, you can at least do the speed limit. That's that's why it's there. So, <laughs> I know. That seems fair. California advantages of never leaving my house. Yeah, yeah. Cool. It's going to be good snow though, up in the mountains. Yeah, yeah. We're we're talking about getting up to the mountains soon because uh, the kids want to go sledding or something. I'm like, it's cold. Why would we want to do that? It makes no sense. <laughs> well, we mentioned it last week a little bit. Was that Elasticsearch had changed their licensing, and boy, oh boy, did that story explode after we recorded last week. So. I'm going to summarize both the Elastic article, even though we kind of talked about it a little bit last week, uh, and then talk about some of the things that happened after that, and then we can ask about this in general. But so basically, Elasticsearch wrote this blog post basically saying that they're declaring, due to Amazon and Amazon Elasticsearch service, that they are changing their license from the Apache 2 license to the SSPL, which for those of you who've been following along with us talking about licensing for the last two years, the SSLPL is the basically anti-cloud licensing model. And so basically, if you're a company that's using the Elasticsearch service to basically provide a SaaS capability of some sort or cloud service, uh, you are not allowed to do that with the SSPL. And so you had to go get special licensing from Elasticsearch, etc. So that's a very anti-Amazon thing. And so, you know, originally they were still licensing Elasticsearch under the Apache 2, and then they had XPack and all these things in the enterprise. And then about last year, around some time, they basically said they would add, uh, some of the components of XPack and Kibana and Beats and Logstash into the same Apache 2 licensing code. And they had in a blog post, uh, we did not change the license of any of the Apache 2 code of Elasticsearch, Kibana, Beats, and Logstash, and we never will. Well, unfortunately, they did because <laughs> they now made all of that SSPL basically going back on their promise they made a year ago. And that basically made the entire open source community on the Internet lose their minds. So the very first uh, salvo in this argument was Logs.io, which, of course, is a very popular logging platform as a service that uses Elasticsearch. And so they're actually now probably impacted by the SSPL, although this has never been tested in court. So it's still a bit questionable. But uh, they basically said they are going to do a hard fork. They were seeking partners, and their intent is to fork and then hopefully eventually turn it over to the CNCF, and the fork will be based on the 710 build, which is the last Apache 2 licensed version of the code. I think a couple days later, Amazon announced that they would also be forking the Elasticsearch code as part of the open distro for Elasticsearch. They've always previously been uh, providing upstream support first uh, and giving back code to Elasticsearch to help they get an upstream before they incorporate it into their product. They also wanted to point out that there's been many other forks of Kibana 3, uh, of Kibana, including Kibana 3 was forked over to become Grafana. So this isn't unusual for there to be a fork on the Elasticsearch branch. And in fact, Elasticsearch is also a fork of Lucene, uh, which is the core search capability of Elasticsearch. And so, you know, they basically then pointed to a bunch of people on the internet who said this was fishy behavior and anti-competitive, etc. 
And then uh, Logs.io basically followed up with another blog post saying they were going to partner with AWS. Uh, so we only have to have one fork, not two, because that would have been awful if Logs.io had ended up forking this in addition to AWS. So it sounds like Logs.io and is going to get in bed with AWS on this, as well as all the other companies who are interested in forking the Elasticsearch code. I kind of wish it was a lightning round thing because SSPL should be sucks to be a SaaS provider license. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. nice. But don't worry, it won't affect most of our users, just the ones that make money. You know, the thing I was most interested about this is, you know, you look at Elasticsearch is now a publicly traded company and, you know, they're reportedly going to make $500 million in revenue in 2021. You know, if they continue at the current run rate they are at as after the end of Q4, you know, you look at Amazon, you know they make some amount of money on Elasticsearch. We don't know what that number is, but it's let's just say it's it's money. <laughs> you know, but then, you know, the people who are really getting suffering in this is the open source contributed to Elasticsearch, assuming that that license is going to be always be open and that their code wouldn't be used in this method. And that's the, really the thing is that all of us are the ones suffering for this. It's not that Amazon is going to suffer. It's not Elasticsearch. It's, it's all the users of Elasticsearch and who want to contribute and want to do things with it that are really going to pay for this in the long term which is really the bummer of the whole situation. It is kind of nice, though, that there's, I mean, I'm sure Elasticsearch would be super happy right now if they could also not allow uh, AWS and uh, and others to fork the Apache version and maintain it. And that's the promise of that license is that if, if a provider, if a controller does something like this, you can always pick up at that point uh, after the Apache license after the license changes and not have lost all of your work up to then. So. Yeah. But those open source guys didn't make any money. They're not making $500 million here either. <laughs> so still, it's, it's still kind of a crappy situation, I think. Yeah. Well, but I mean, there, there will be an open source version that continues on. Yeah. And this is very similar Just to the Hudson, the Hudson yeah. Jenkins moment, right? Where, you know, Hudson yeah. got bought by, Oracle and everyone said hell to the no and they said we're going to fork and they made Jenkins and then Hudson's basically still exists but it's basically dead. I mean I don't think anybody actually uses that anymore other than maybe Oracle. Yep. Well it'll be interesting to see what happens still with the lawsuit that's still going on that has not been resolved yet either over the trademark dispute of Amazon calling it Amazon Elasticsearch service. You know we'll definitely see what happens on this over the next few months but I don't really know what the what the catalyst to do it now was that's the only thing I'm confused about like what about doing it now is important because the trial is still several months away I don't really understand that part of it I, I think they've they've probably spent some engineering time on new features for version eight and they're probably making this change now to protect their investment in the next release uh, that's reasonable guess I didn't think about that yeah and they probably have like a year's worth of stuff backlog that's what i would do if i were them so that you immediately have a a year head start on the open source project yeah uh, that's assuming that open distro doesn't have stuff coming too that's going to be interesting we'll see yeah, yeah i mean good. they've they've done it to themselves with with some of the things they built into the x-pack rather than building into the product the open source thing so they could sell it you know it's one of those areas where they were you know they were making basic security and enterprise paid for feature and that's what you know, they were already sort of on thin ice, which is what led to open distro and other things. And so this is just sort of another sort of jab in the open source community that's rubbing everyone the wrong way. It sucks. Again, it comes back to the question of is open source really like a business model or not? I, I did do some research. Adam Jacob is one of the articles that's linked to in the Amazon post. Uh, and he actually links to a YouTube video. Uh, where he talked about how he sees open source as a business model at OSCON in 2019. It's actually really interesting. Our 11-minute video, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I learned a lot. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of really good thinking about this and really where does open source kind of go from here if this is going to be kind of the reality these companies are going to adopt SSPL. Or maybe we realize they're not really open source and they're just trying to do that for the wrong reasons. I don't know. Yeah, I think this is the price that, that they're paying in MongoDB paid as well for trying to use open source as a, as a sales funnel rather than using it for the community that it was intended for. I mean, yeah, it's, so it's, you it's tons of money. Yeah, tons I mean, it's clear that they never, never had any intention of, of really wanting to accept user pull requests and things. I mean, we've, we've had the same experience when we've made changes to Beats and things like that, and Elastic have no interest in merging those things in with their code. It's, it's a facade, and, and it's a sales funnel and nothing more, and I think losing control over their products is really what the, the cost of, of uh, abusing that relationship with the community. 
Well, I think that's you know one of the interesting things about the article in general was that Adam Jacobs talked about that exact thing. Like, you know, open source as a sales funnel is not is not open source. That's not the intent of open source at all. And so that's what these people are doing, which is really an interesting perspective I hadn't even thought about until watching that video. So again, I'll I'll link to it in the show notes. I think it's worth uh, checking out and uh, definitely recommend watching. Well, let's move on to Amazon news for the week. So first up, Amazon Lex is introducing you in a new enhanced console experience, which would normally make a lightning round topic. Uh, but they also announced new v- the V2 APIs as part of this announcement too, so it made it to the main show. The new console experience apparently makes it easier to build, deploy, and manage conversational experiences with Lex, as well as the new V2 APIs include continuous streaming capabilities. This makes it easier to build bots to focus on things like testing language in the design, test, and deployment process as a single resource. Uh, new simplified versioning, uh, which is great as uh, you know, V2 APIs are always uh, improved over V1s. Providing a simple information architecture where the bot intents and slot types are scoped to specific languages. And now you can leverage the additional builder productivity tools and capabilities to give you more flexibility of your bots all built with Lex. I did not play around with the previous console uh, or APIs, but I have been playing around with this as part of a project that I'm doing now. And it is very nice, uh, you know, just being able to, to very quickly, you know, go through and describe an intent and get that the way you want. And then there's a there's an interactive sort of chat feature in the console so you can immediately test it out. And then while I haven't used the versioning, I can totally imagine, you know, training the model wrong, getting the intent slightly wrong, and then, you know, all of a sudden my my helpful customer service bot is swearing and making racist comments. And so you know, version rollbacks probably good in that that scenario. <laughs> Don't, just don't use the data set that Microsoft used to train their bot, and you'll be fine. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, the fact that you can run the same test cases on old and new versions of the bot after you've added new intents to make sure that things don't go the wrong way and that, and it still understands their old commands the way they, the way you intend to is is really useful. And I'm super excited to to see uh, the bot that you're working on with your team, Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. It sounds like it sounds cool. I want to I want to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, the Amazon CloudWatch agent uh, now supports open telemetry APIs and the SDKs, allowing you to quickly and easily instrument your CloudWatch agent to send data to AWS X-Ray or your telemetry data to CloudWatch. The update enables the agent to receive open telemetry metrics and traces from apps and services running on EC2 and is intended for existing CloudWatch agent users who want to begin monitoring apps with open telemetry. So a nice, easy path to open telemetry, which I think is a little bit of a tell that uh, they might be making lots of investments in open telemetry and really kind of moving away from CloudWatch as their primary monitoring choice in the future, maybe. I wonder, is it more of a, like, because it's, you know, open telemetry is just sort of a standard that people are adopting. You roll that into CloudWatch. I don't know if that's moving off of CloudWatch or just, you know, sort of making it a multi-purpose tool. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it definitely will change the paradigm a little bit because open telemetry is so pretty heavily built into Prometheus and Grafana and all those things. So it makes it much easier to adopt those technologies versus CloudWatch. Uh, and if you can do it without the CloudWatch tax of pulling data to a third party, uh, I'd be all about that. Yeah, let's face it, they're not going to go with the Elasticom schema anymore. <laughs> uh, probably not. <laughs> Unless they, the Amazon open schema with Elastic yeah. schema compatibility. <laughs> can't wait till the next lightning round with that one yeah <laughs> amazon guard duty enhances security incident investigation workflows with the new integration with amazon detective guard duty has added these hyperlink pivots to make it easier to jump from guard duty security findings to a pre-populated amazon detective investigation experience uh, this works by using a finding or a resource associated with a finding such as an ec2 account AWS account im user or ip address as a starting point and detective then provides a visual summary and details of api and network activity that led to the guard duty's detection of that specific threat uh, upon resolution of this finding you can then archive it right there in detective without having to go back to guard duty so uh, better support, security tools i like it integrated too it's fun when they get integrated together so you don't have to do all the glue or go to here, see the thing, and then go to detective and have to do, redo your search and refine the thing. Yeah, super annoying. I'm so glad to see that that deep linking happening between the two platforms. I wonder if it works uh, cross region yet, because uh, opening windows of resources in other regions always break always breaks the uh, the console. Pretty well, sure detective had that concept of like the like the centralized dashboard for for detective, like but moving cross region or just central region. Or to per region. Well, usually it's if you like once you go cross account, 
you can typically do you configure both regions to go to that centralized account. The biggest problem with the console is that you can't be in multiple regions at the same time. So once you switch, you know, if you have multiple tabs open, you're like, oh, I'm going to look at this server in that region, and now it resets all of your tabs to that region, which is the bummer. So it would be nice if they fix that someday. I don't know if that's in their plans, but uh, that's always been an annoyance. I mean, on one way, it protects me from accidentally deleting the wrong database. So <laughs> it has its pluses and minuses, I guess. So maybe I don't want Oops. it. <laughs> Yeah. It might make me more likely to delete the wrong database because that doesn't stop me. Of course, I've got, you know, workarounds and, and browser tricks that I use to have like nine accounts open. So yeah, I do, I do the same thing, cognito windows yeah. and different profiles and all kinds of stuff. So you, there's definitely ways you can get around this limitation. It's just, it'd be nice if it was native. That's all. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, well, Peter, the next time you are deciding to hike the Appalachian Trail uh, and you realize that you are missing that important sales meeting, uh, and you hop onto that call, and then your salespeople say, "Hey, Peter, would you share the slides?" And this is a Chime call. Uh-oh. You can now do so. I can't do that with Chime. You can do this now with Chime on your iOS and Android device. You can now share remote, no way, support screen shares, as well as the video view on the Appalachian Trail. So you can make the story even more visual and say, "Here I am on the trail with your PowerPoint presentation." Uh, and then all, of course, all your attendees on their very large twenty-four to thirty-two inch monitor can see your teeny tiny screen projecting the PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> Uh, from your phone so you know that's great so there's now a capability that has been in other products uh, all along and i really just want to talk about you hiking so that's all over it this is well will i will i look like donkey kong just totally oh, I, I, that's all i can envision is you looking like that can't wait i i imagine you'd swing this into an amazing presentation you know with a metaphor of the appalachian trail and what it what it represents to the business and the future and the horizon and moving to the cloud is like this trail it's long and meandering <laughs> journey that requires many, many months of preparation and planning. I'll make kill you. <laughs> <laughs> As I trip over yep. dead carcasses. It's really useful though, having screen share. I mean, it, even jokingly, not about sales and support meetings and things, but, but you think about all the products that there used to be for PCs for doing screen shares so that support technicians could watch what you're doing. And now nobody uses those and everyone's got a, an iPad or Android tablet or Android phone or something. So being able to provide that same support with a screen share from a from an application on your phones can be really useful especially as you know more medical uses get get shifted onto mobile devices and things where you may need to to, to provide that level of support support for people so they can use your applications properly yeah so co-browse inside mobile apps has always been kind of a, an interesting space so you know originally the people kind of invented it was actually amazon because in the first uh fire tablets they built the ability to connect with a support engineer and then the support engineer could actually connect to your android device and see what you're doing on the on the device and help you with whatever problem you were having which is really great except it was only it was limited to specifically the fire os on the android tablet and so you know eventually salesforce kind of came out with a similar solution that they made available as part of their support portal which you could use for mobile apps that have this api and sdk enabled but really other than those two use cases no one's really done co-browse that i'm aware of in mobile which i think is a missed opportunity i agree with you i think with healthcare and older population with covid you know trying to use mobile apps to do these things those type of features are really beneficial of course Probably most of the problem is they can't log in. If they can't log in, they can't get to the SDK to launch the Cobras. Anyways, <laughs> so maybe that's why it never really works. But at least it's a it's a good dream. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008. They are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. On Twitter this week, uh, I was perusing, as I do, uh, all the chatter in the Amazon Cloud twi- Twitter universe, uh, and someone posted uh, the release notes for the ECS Agent version 1.5, which they announced. And uh, so I went and looked at the release notes, and number, lo and behold, they released a new feature, GitHub issue 2798, called Allow ECS Customers to Execute Interactive Commands Inside Containers. 
apparently going to be called ECS exec, but I do not see it yet enabled in the CLI or the console. But if it's in the agent, I think it's coming very soon. And I can now tell you officially, this is my oldest PFR and it is now dead because I've been asking for this. <laughs> this was the very first PFR I filed uh, at mm-hmm. my prior job. So there you go. This is whenever I'm teaching someone the differences between Kubernetes and ECS this is the first thing they ask for. So this is uh, fantastic. How do I bash into it? How do I, uh, yeah, how do I, yeah, exactly. how do I get to my container? Is there any way to get in the container and see where I screwed up? Now there is. Well, not quite yet, but soon. Soon. That's how I yeah, say it. Pretty yeah, pretty close. So yeah, that's true. I assume, I assume in a future week uh, we will be talking about a much larger blog post about this feature when it comes out because I imagine it's going to be an update to both the CLI tools as well as the console to support this capability, which would be great. Yeah, I think this is one of the ones that I was really hoping for for reInvent, um, but it did not count. Well, I mean, we've only talked about it with the product manager for ECS for three years in a row. So, (laughs) I mean, it was one of those ones we could never really like put in the prediction show because, you know, technically we uh, would be under NDA on that. But uh, we did literally talk to the ECS product manager about that like multiple years in a row that we want that capability. So, I just gave up. I just figured. Yeah, Yeah, I just figured it was never coming. I just just Mm -hmm. kind of wrote it off to history. Like there's a good reason. There's a good reason they don't want you to be able to do it. Yeah, something exactly. Like, like there's some something with their state machine that doesn't allow them to do it securely, and so that you know just never going to happen. And then I started championing. I really wanted ECS on prem, and so then I got that instead, which I was super happy about as well. So I, I mean, I just I'm coming out winning all the way across the board here on ECS. So what is it? Systems manager, container, session manager, or how are they going <laughs> to bastardize that name into into uh, systems manager? Yeah, know. it'll be something terrible, right? Yeah. God, that SSM maybe. systems manager, container manager, session manager, manager. <laughs> I need something to help manage the uh, container, manage session, manage <laughs> things, whatever. <laughs> I need I need a service to help me figure out which of the services I actually need is because that's that naming I can't get past every time. That is it for AWS. Moving on to GCP, apparently Google's taking advantage of some of the recent security incidents, maybe with SolarWinds, et cetera, to double down on their BeyondCorp Zero Trust Enterprise capabilities, and they have announced the general availability of their comprehensive Zero Trust product offering, BeyondCorp Enterprise, such an amazing name, rolled off the tongue, which extends and replaces BeyondCorp remote access. Uh, so they killed a product and gave you a new product, which is the same product, but yet more modern with proven technologies uh, that companies need that Google uses according to the press release. So they break it down to three key benefits for customers on their zero trust journey. First, a scalable, reliable zero trust platform and a secure agentless architecture, including the ability to have a non-disruptive agentless support via Chrome browser, because everything is secure in a Chrome browser. The Google's global network of 144 edge locations available in 200 countries and territories, DDoS protection, and built-in verifiable platform security, which has been made more important with recent software supply chain attacks. The next uh, major feature is the continuous and real-time end-to-end protection with embedded data and threat protection newly added to Chrome to prevent unintentional data loss and exfiltration. There's also a strong phishing-resistant authentication capability, continuous authorization for every interaction between a user and a BeyondCorp protected resource, and end-to-end security from user to app to app to app uh, via the Beyond Prod architecture and automated public trust SSL certificates. And then the third and final feature is the is the open and extensibility of the agent to support a wide variety of complementary solutions, including building on the expanding ecosystem of technology partners in their BeyondCorp alliance, which democratizes zero trust and allows customers to leverage existing investments, opening at the endpoint to incorporate signals from the partners such as CrowdStrike and Tanium so customers can utilize this information when building access policies, as well as integration into partners such as Citrix and VMware for VDI. Oh, that was a lot. Was well, a I lot. don't have a comment about the product, but I do wonder how you can have 144 edge locations in more than 200 countries. That was slightly weird. <laughs> I did double check that number when I wrote it down. I was like, that's a little strange. Uh, yeah, no, I, I looked, at the, looked at the blog post and it says the same thing. I'm like, eh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just imagine these data centers built right, right on the border. border. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I also was slightly confused by that because I, I was like, I don't understand the, the math on this, but okay. So, but yeah, I, I think the zero trust thing is super cool and I'm super glad to see this one becoming bigger. I like a non-Google specific version that I can use on Amazon and on Azure as well as my corporate network, which I know I think Kashicorp has their product trying to do this and there's a couple others as well. Um, so overall, I think that's a really great move. Well, technically you could use this to access Amazon. Like it is, it is open in that sense where if you set it up, your any web app 
that you establish trust with, you can sort of go to. But you know, it would I do see this as sort of a a very like if you like you're probably going to have to be on G Suite. Like I know it's not technically a requirement, but to, for it actually to be usable, it's going to you know. Well, you're going to have to off of G Suite, or you're going to have to integrate with some type of federated SAML, which then that's a nightmare. Then it has to map to a Google user group identity and IAM, and you, you can just see how it wraps you know rolls downhill very quickly with a lot of different things. I'm uh, still the the name feels like every you know evil technology corporation from every Hollywood movie like Beyond it Clark, does. Like, right? You know, it's like oh, so you're just basically telling me this thing spies on me, and then you're like, oh no, Chrome does data exfiltration, so it's like oh, it really is just spying on me, whether I use this or not. The Chrome browser is probably just taking every bit of data into the browser and sucking it into the mothership. I always thought the word dynamics was the was the word for the evil corporation. So it's like trust dynamics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they should name this Beyond Dynamics. That's what you're saying. Beyond yeah, Dynamics. There you go. There you go. Yeah. It's like evil, evil. Become <laughs> yeah. the Cloud Pod's new sinister corporation. Beyond Dynamics. Talk about it every week. Democratizing zero trust is a funny, t- funny spin on that too. Like yeah. I like that that leverage. <laughs> like, really? Like. <laughs> yeah. There's there's some terminology in this that I copy and pasted that I was like, that's very odd. Uh, well, I mean, overall, I, you know, decentralizing, you know, the network and access is, is for the better, you know, VPNs won't die anytime soon, but also like trying to funnel everyone through a single network pipe. is just not a reality anymore. So this is, this is definitely a, a, a good move. Well, I was on a recent podcast guest appearance on security voices, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, kind of wrap up to 2020. They just released it though. In first week of January, but uh, I'll link to that in the show notes too. But uh, you know, we were talking about this exact issue that the days of, you know, the network that I connect to that then gets me access to production. That's no longer viable in a world where everyone has to VPN in because of COVID when only your, your system admins had to do it, you know, it was, probably okay but now with all this new changes like the zero trust is going to be a big deal uh, for a lot of companies as they continue to try to segment access and reduce access patterns for end users and this came about from that scale right google got past the point size wise where having a whole bunch of vpn concentrators made sense so they started looking at other options for for their staff so it's tested comes from that makes sense well, if you are on the journey to bring your uh, operations team up to a Google SRE level standards or really driving SRE culture of accountability and serviceability and all of the abilities that SRE enables, you know, training on this is the typical way that people do this as well as, you know, adopting organizational best practices. But, you know, you don't always know if those tools will lead to a successful outcome. And so Google, you know, is their desire to help you understand if your product might be able to work for you, uh, is now releasing the new cloud operations sandbox, uh, where you can learn and practice who, how to kickstart your observability journey and answer that question of who will it work for me. The cloud ops sandbox has everything you need in one place with a single click, including a demo service, which is the online boutique microservice demo app uh, enabled for Google. A one-click deployment of automated script that deploys and configures service to include for Google Cloud, including service monitoring configuration, tracing with open telemetry, cloud profiling, logging, error reporting, debugging, and more. A load generator to push load to your new configuration. And then several SRE recipes that will actually break uh, your application in interesting ways in the demo so you can see how your cloud ops tools and would then help you find the root cause of the problem while you work in production, as well as an interactive walkthrough to get started with all things cloud ops. This is a super neat tool for maybe, you know, kind of stick in the mud administrators or former administrators just that learn by doing. There was concepts in here, even though I'm familiar with a lot of it, that as I was playing around with this tool, it sort of just sort of cemented into place a little bit. Just, you know, little things like the way that the the dashboard is presented as far as like SLIs and SLOs. It's just it's it's a really good way of learning this information. It's been around forever. You know, Google is championing SRE for I don't know at least three years. Twenty years now, at least three, at least three, at least three, if not longer. I I, I know at least I know I'm for sure it's been three years, but maybe longer than that. Yeah, I think it's a lot longer. But you know, it's one of those things. And trying to describe the difference between telemetry and tracing and monitoring to some people is is trying to explain to them what a separate language is in a foreign language. And so this is, you know, a really great way of demonstrating that and providing that visibility. And it's just slick. I like it. It's really slick to play around with. Like it is really one click and you can, you have something tangible that you can play with. 
I'm always shocked at how few companies just have the basic ability to do load generation. Oh, um, yeah. Performance engineering is a lost art for many companies. Uh, so I did real-time follow-up. I did look up when the first book was published. It was in March 23rd, 2016. So it is just about a month away from being five years old, exactly. So there you go. You were right. Good job. Well, if you uh, were excited about our announcement or Google's announcement about WebSockets and gRPC and all those things back in October, but then you realized that you couldn't actually do WebSockets and you couldn't actually do bidirectional gRPC, uh, they have now fixed that with the support of uh, WebSockets, HTTP2, and gRPC bidirectional streams for Cloud Run. This makes it now easier for you to enable all of your WebSocket collaborative use cases, including live whiteboarding, video conferencing, and more. And they now support end-to-end HTTP2 transport encryption on Cloud Run. Uh, this is useful for apps that already support HTTP2, which they actually highlighted in the article is not very many. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently this is something you don't need right now, but you might want it in the future. And so Google is ahead of you uh, and providing you all of the capabilities. I mean, partially support, you know, in these these runtimes is why I think adoption and is is so you know limited. There's a lot of load balancing technologies that don't support this. There's a lot of traffic routing patterns that don't support this. And so the more that this sort of gets baked in at the at this layer, the you know I think the more developer teams will use it and and offer you know more collaboration and real time back and forth communication. It's good. It's interesting because I think the more the more you adopt the cloud best practices and the more you buy into either the, the Amazon or the Google way of doing things, the harder it becomes to, to adopt new technologies like this because you you do rely on the vendor to have rolled these things out. And it's it's a bit of a chicken and egg really. You, they, they won't do it unless customers demand it, but customers really have a hard time getting into a place where they can demand things like that until the vendors sort of semi-commit to doing things in the future. So, I mean... The security team will just tell you it has to be done that way, and then you have to figure out how to do it, and then you have to rip out the cloud run because you don't doesn't support what you need. And that's also a terrible scenario that happens many, many times as well. Yeah, too soon for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Peter, since you weren't you weren't super impressed with sharing your slides on the Appalachian Trail, I've got another great feature for you this week. Google has given you a blog post on how to write your own workout app. Now, this app can track the weights you're lifting, the crunches you're doing, and how you feel in general on a day-to-day basis. And they're going to walk you through how to build that app all with the beauty of no code, which I know how much you love no code in general. You know, I lo- not only do I hate no code, but my app is going to be simple because it doesn't have to count past one pound or one crunch. <laughs> so it should be very simple. Uh, now, as much as we mock this, this is a great way to learn some GCP technologies. And, you know, I always like the kind of walkthroughs that are very tangible. Like, this is definitely something that people understand because they work out, I assume. I don't do that, but you know, other people do. And so I assume they understand the concept and why this makes sense. And so, you know, same thing with the demo apps that we have for Honeycode. There, there are things that people commonly do, and this is why you can show people the value and the, the value prop of no code, if there is a value prop, which is still to be determined. Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go do it. And I'm going to accept I'm going to change it. I'm going to modify the app. Instead of tracking weights and crunches, we're going to track tap outs and tapped out. <laughs> how many times I tapped and how many times I got someone to tap. Nice. And then I'll let you know. I'll, I'll put it, make it public. All right, there you go. <laughs> uh, the fact that the, the, the Honeycode and, and this also, you know, both use spreadsheets in their example of how to set things off. I'm like, okay, that's fair enough. But that all the examples, all the use cases for all these no-code solutions are very, very similar. It's like an event tracking thing. It's very, very limited in scope. Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be something as, it has to be a form workflow type work, you know, thing or a milestone-based tracking tool. Those are really the two things you can do in no-code. And then anything outside of those kind of two types of paradigms, you're going to struggle with no code because those concepts are more difficult. And so that's where I think that's why you see the kind of similar uh, example use cases. But, you know, again, the other point of this is I could also build this application by just downloading one from the App Store because I'm sure there's already three bajillion of them on the (laughs) Google and Android App Store or Android and Apple App Store. So, uh, you know, it's, it's also the side of like it's really completely pointless, which is the problem with a lot of the examples is like, Project tracking, great. I can replace what with that? Like, I'm going to replace, you know, Smartsheet or some of these other amazing uh, project management tools with your crappy no-code demo? I don't know. So that said, I finally found a use case for Honeycode, and I'm still very proud of it, but so proud of it, I still have not implemented it. 
But, you know, like I, you know, I very frequently have to communicate changes to large amounts of teams and then track who's done what. And this is the perfect way. So historically, you know, it's everyone emailing version 963, the same Excel spreadsheet where they filtered their name, went through and clicked it, that whole thing. But now I can develop with no code in 10 minutes, a simple app that everyone can navigate. They can do the same filtering, the same thing. But, you know, then we're not emailing Excel spreadsheets. So what's wrong with SharePoint? Hmm? What's wrong with SharePoint? You know exactly what's wrong with SharePoint. (laughs) (laughs) Another problem with SharePoint or OneDrive in this case is that uh, if you have one of those spreadsheets and you want to filter to just just Ryan's asks or just Jonathan's asks, when Ryan filters it, it then unfilters it for Jonathan to his thing. So in my in my new day job, I we're using we're the Google App Shop, and so they have the you know the same thing. But when you actually click it, it says, "Do you want to change the the filter just for you or for everybody?" I'm like. This feature is amazing. <laughs> Where have you been all my life? And I would just be like, everybody, 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 yeah. everybody. Yeah, yeah the way that the, the uh, Google the Google uh, apps scale to literally tens of thousands of users is, is just amazing. You can have right access into Google Sheets to a select few people, and then anyone with read access literally gets a view on the data. But if they if they tweak things like filters, then it only affects their own view and not the global view. It's really it's really neat. And you can also like say these. I only want these fields to be editable by this user. You, you can get to that level of granularity, which is pretty impressive. And then you can feed it into BigQuery. I'm still going to do my no code app just because now it's like a it'll it'll slightly frustrate Peter, which is always a good thing. Then I'll get to I'll get to tout my no code skills. I'm going to add that in big letters to my resume. Very nice. Well, I look forward to Ryan does a thing where you tell us all about your adventures on Honeycode. <laughs> That's a good idea. It's like uh, maybe, it's I like, will. Uh, I thought you were adding that to your resume. It's like. A world class sprinter yeah. adding I learned to crawl yesterday to their <laughs> resume. It's like, but you you want a hundred yard dash? It's like but I've never crawled before. <laughs> Nobody cares. He's gonna be the only person that's got I don't code on their resume. <laughs> <laughs> well, if uh you know you were upset by the prior UI of BigQuery, Google, and I will put this in quotation is giving you radical usability improvements for more efficient work, making it easier to find the data you need and write the right SQL quickly in BigQuery. Uh, The new capabilities span the entire SQL workspace experience across three feature areas, including a new multi-tab navigation capability, a new resource panel, and a new SQL editor. And that, my friends, is revolutionary. Is it like radical in the sense of like major change or is it radical like in you know, I, like I, you California know, it's, it, it, it's Google. So I can't actually answer yeah. that question for you if it's that <laughs> type of radical or the other one. I, do, I just don't really know, you know, but you know, I, it's nice. It does look much more like a SQL editor that I'm used to from like SQL server or from my SQL from using the GUI, which I don't try to do. But if I did, you know, they have tabs and they have the ability to like write a query and then have it be in this tab. Then you're the next tab. It's like a visual, it's like a code editor, but for BigQuery, like a, I don't know if it's radical, but it's it's nice. I'll take it. That sounds pretty cool to me. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when you get all that convenience on top of a tool that's so powerful, like BigQuery. And you could use it to front your uh, no-code app. So there you go. You, mm-hmm. you can use BigQuery. <laughs> that's right. You can analyze all those workouts you're not doing. Like, well, if you, <laughs> if you lifted more than zero crunches, you could, uh, or did more than zero crunches, you could get something better. So. <laughs> Well, let's move to Azure. Uh, Azure continues to try to convince the world that people are upset about Azure cost management by their monthly newsletter, which continues to drop every month on Clockwork. And most of the time we don't talk about it, but Azure was a little little empty this week. So we're talking about the Azure cost management and billing updates for January 2021, my favorite highlight. The new month brings you all kinds of fantastic cost optimization capabilities, including new cost views for resource groups. Woo-hoo. Remembering your last use scope and cost management because it now has cookies, apparently. Uh, there's some new lab features for you, including cost analysis views for resources and reservations, a change scope from the menu capability, a new open configuration items in the main menu, and a streamlined cost management report, etc. There's also five new ways to save money running .NET running, uh, run, uh, sorry, running .NET apps on Azure, as well as a new instance-based cost savings recommendations, and plus more training and documentation about all things cost management on Azure, because apparently someone does have this problem I've just never met them. Oh no! It's, no one's got the problem. It's if if you search for how do I choose a cloud provider, you you just download the the canned fifty questions you should ask your cloud provider, and you know questions seventeen or eighteen. Thanks, Corey Quinn. I think I think questions like, does your cloud provider have tools which do this? 
does your cloud provider have have uh, in-depth views into into billion costs per project or whatever granularity and i think the only reason they build this is uh is they need to check those boxes well this is uh in strong support of one of my predictions for 2021 let's not forget which was what which was uh that cost is going <laughs> to be the most <laughs> the, the biggest pain point the, the big a bigger blocker than security for companies to migrate to the cloud well, if you were upset that your South Central U.S. region uh, only had one AZ and you couldn't run your 99.99% uptime app there, Azure is now giving you multiple AZs, uh, which, again, this is a weird wrinkle of Microsoft Azure. They do not build regions with multiple AZs out of the box. It's only when they have enough volume and enough business interest to actually do so, they'll actually build that three uh, AZ setup. So Central U.S. now has three AZs, making it much more highly available for you and running your service at the highest levels of time you need. Woohoo! All of my Azure services run in high availability regions. Because <laughs> <laughs> you run them on Oracle and just connect it to Azure or? All zero of them. <laughs> yeah, we document them with uh, Peter's Crunch app. Yeah. I don't always <laughs> run workloads in Azure, but when I do, they're highly available. Well, if you respect your partners, unlike Amazon Web Services, uh, you get this kind of announcement like this, which is introducing the new seamless integration between Microsoft Azure and Confluent Cloud. Uh, so if you did not want to run that nasty, nasty Kafka cluster, uh, you can now do so on Azure with the Confluent Cloud, which would now bill directly through your Azure bill. Confluence will still run and support their SaaS offering, but you get the benefits of Kafka in your local Azure region, AZ, or VPC. This avoids the need to create VPNs and other setups between Azure Cloud and Confluent Cloud to provide those capabilities to you. Uh, so again, Azure and Google have gone very much the partnership route, partnering with these people to do that. Uh, Amazon just did the same thing with Grafana, but has not yet done that with anyone else and actually competed uh, has a competing product called MSK for this. So, you know, eh, the battle continues. And yeah. is the Grafana partnership managed like this? Because I thought it was just, you know, uh, Amazon providing managed Grafana, much like they provide managed Elasticsearch. Uh, it is managed, but the support actually, if you're paying for the premium version, the support actually comes directly from Grafana. So it may mm. not be, I assume that they're managing it in some way because I don't know how they would support the product without some access. Yeah. Now, this type of integration, you know, I, I love it. I love, you know, it's from a customer point of view, it's if you want to run Kafka, well, you don't want to run Kafka, you know, because you're smart because running Kafka is hard and a lot of work. And if you just, you know, you want to integrate it in your app, having this level of connectivity is just a huge enablement so that you can make sure that you're running, you know, an app in a resilient manner, but not having to do like just manage an entire ecosystem to support it with the networking and everything. Having to do a very similar thing in AWS for Confluent, like it's a lot of work to make this make this happen in AWS, just because of the way the networking is set up for VPCs. You think eventually the networking problem will just be completely abstracted away, and we won't have to worry about it. I mean, we won't have to think about connectivity when we deploy apps. Uh, I mean, that was the promise of private links, and that you know, it's not really a full abstraction from those things, but it's, you know, being able to offer connectivity as a service as part of your offering was sort of the idea. It's not really how it works in reality. Just, you know, there's because there's too many intricacies there, probably too many chefs in the kitchen with, you know, IAM policies and connectivity. Like it's, there's a lot of edge cases and gotchas too. Like your app has to be structured in a very finite way and can only support so many, you know, connections and it's, it's a little limited. So kind of feels like you can't get there from here. Yeah, I mean, it's enough to change whole ar application architectures in some cases, you know, especially with something as, as you know, kind of rudimentary to application function as something like Kafka can be. Like, um, how how distributed can I run this? How you know is this going to affect high availability? These things like it's it's can be very changing. So, good on Azure and Confluent Cloud. Hello, I'm Mark, co-founder and chief product officer at OpenRaven. Understanding the type of data you have in the cloud is step one for the security of any organization. Does this cloud storage object contain personal information, healthcare information, financial information, or even developer secrets? Once OpenRaven discovers the location of your data, we classify it and report on the sensitive data you have. 
PowerPoints to Parquet files, CSVs to source code. OpenRaven finds the risks to your sensitive data, whatever your cloud scale. Visit openraven.com slash the cloud pod to learn more and start a free trial to discover, classify, monitor, and protect the data you have in the cloud. All right, that's it for new news. Let's take us to lightning round, Peter. Now generally available, copy blob support over private endpoints in Azure storage. I mean, I really appreciate, Ryan, that you can now copy your private endpoints with your blobs privately. <laughs> Thank you. Azure App Service Authentication Portal Experience is now in public preview. I mean, what, what kind of app needs a portal to authenticate and needs an experience? Like, my lovely uh, B2B app has a lovely experience as it goes to the Azure portal to uh, get its authentication done. It's a lovely experience. Like I, it's an API call. Like, come on, people. What are we doing here? It comes with a glass of wine and some fine French cheese or something. <laughs> yes. Amazon Redshift doubles managed storage quota to 128 terabytes per node for RA316XL and RA34XL node types. Which means that you can save a bunch of money by reducing the number of Redshift nodes, but yet kill performance. And the battle between your cloud business officer and your Redshift team now continues in earnest. I was going to say, Ooh. like, does it really re- save costs? Because now everything's going to taste take twice as long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's cheaper, but it's slower. But yeah, it needed to be cheaper. Yeah. Probably people with big data sets and and fewer queries. Well, that makes sense for them. They could buy it. I'm buying it. Mm. Someone's compliance organization just said, "Hey, we need five years of data retention." instead of mm. <laughs> I got an idea let's leave it in redshift <laughs> that's a great way to do it you know ignore mm-hmm. that data lake concept that's that's just silly <laughs> AWS Shield advanced that's right advanced now provides mitigation metrics and network traffic timelines proving that the CFO yeah. really did want to know what that money was going for <laughs> yeah so you, you know that thing that you didn't actually think was working or doing anything, but you've been paying for? Now at least you have a metric that says it's doing things. Yay. Or it's not really doing things, and now you really... Or it's not. Yeah. <laughs> or not. Or not. Amazon CloudWatch Agent now supports Mac OS on Amazon EC2 Mac instances. <laughs> so, I mean, we've been going for now almost um, two months without any monitoring of Mac instances. How many of these have been spun up that are just sitting there doing nothing because there was no metrics? <laughs> <laughs> Probably a lot. That's how they paid for the development of Amazon yeah. EC2 Mac. <laughs> I, I wonder if there's if there's a metric like a binary metric ha- for like how many when your Mac goes sad Mac. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> oh no, sad Mac on Node three. Yeah. Amazon MSK now supports the ability to change the size or family of your Apache, Apache Kafka brokers. I mean. This is why I'm paying MSK versus Confluent Cloud. I get to do this. <laughs> I feel like there's a joke and change the size of my family, but I, yeah. I just yeah. <laughs> I can't, get, I trying, I can't get it out. I was trying to figure something out, but yeah, <laughs> kind of while still being tactful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Amazon Key Spaces for Apache Cassandra now supports JSON syntax to help you read and write data from other systems more easily. I mean, JSON and easily in the same sentence, that's rough. <laughs> yes I see migration to DynamoDB in the future <laughs> <laughs> or uh, DocumentDB right? DocumentDB SimpleDB Amazon ECS announces increased service quotas for tasks per service and services per cluster you thought your container was hard to find before now you can <laughs> launch twice as many of them yeah, this is you're going to launch up to 5,000 tasks per service and 5,000 services per cluster and increase from 2,000 each. And I'm like, who really wanted this? Like, oh my God, that's a massive cluster. And you could have multiple containers per task as well. Yeah. So like, oh, oh. I guess I'm trying to compete with that uh, Google Kubernetes uh, article about how they had the largest Kubernetes cluster at like five or 6,000 nodes. They're like, we're going to do that too with ECS. We can scale. Or maybe they're just reducing the service quotas so that someone will do it. <laughs> you know, like, we need better press. Amazon ECS now supports VPC endpoint policies. 
I mean, if it wasn't difficult enough to troubleshoot networking with service mesh and VPCs and all this, now you add an endpoint policy to it too. I mean, one more place that now is blocking your traffic that you can't find. I got sort of infuriated reading this. And so I went on a little bit of a research. I'm like, someone for sure by now, like it's probably been what over a year for VPC endpoint policies, maybe not for ECS, but in general, someone has to have a use case where this would make sense. No. The entire internet, I searched it all, the entire thing. There is no reason why you would need to define an API endpoint with an extra set of permissions on it. I do not understand. Me neither. Although technically you didn't search the internet, Google searched it. Dare you. you. (laughs) Unless you banged it. Did you bang it? You didn't bang it, did you? (laughs) He used used DuckDuckGo. He's a privacy advocate. (laughs) Which and means I still didn't search the internet, but you'll never be able to tell. <laughs> yeah. uh, Amazon EBS announces CloudWatch metrics with one minute granularity on all EBS volume types. Making me terrified that there's someone who needs this feature, that their data volume is changing thus much that they need one minute granularity of it. Well, now I can tell with much more granularity that EBS is not performing at the required throughput that I need. Or I can tell four minutes earlier that my disk ran out of space, but I still missed the alert. <laughs> To be fair, those averages, those five-minute averages are kind of useless when it comes to peak performance of things. You know, if you're absolutely writing for 10 seconds at a time, averaging over five minutes is pretty useless. So this is this is actually a useful feature. Especially turning it into like a metric where you're doing any kind of comparison or you're per second or whatever. You're like, okay, this is this is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for, for, for IOPS, you know, like IOPS and PIOPS usage, it's definitely the right thing. But yeah, for storage usage, it's not. <laughs> it's just what, it's, yeah, that's what the right. joke is, guys, okay? Still 100 gigs. It's still 100 gigs. That's, just because I made fun of it doesn't mean I don't like it. <laughs> In fact, the things I make fun of the most are the things I love the most. Exactly. So. Like I love ECS. I give it merciless crap all the time. Yeah. And Justin gets it with his support of Ryan's private endpoints. Nice. <laughs> Well, that ties it up. We're back to zero, 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 guys. Yeah. It's yeah. a close, close race this year. Close race. We got everyone. We got everyone in the game now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I mentioned earlier in the show the Security Voices I was on, uh, which is the podcast uh, all about security and all things security with uh, the CEO of our Open Raven sponsor, Dave, and Jack Daniel, who's a uh, you know, I'm not even sure what Dave or Jack does, but he's a great storyteller. He's fantastic. He does all the podcast production for them. It's a fantastic episode. I've gotten a lot of compliments about it because uh, we talked about all kinds of things from doing the podcast to reInvent as we recorded it right in the middle of reInvent to conferences in general last year. It's definitely worth uh, checking out and I highly recommend it. Uh, I forgot what I said because it came out in January and I recorded it at the beginning of December. So it was new to me, which is always fun, <laughs> which is always how I listen to podcasts. <laughs> but definitely check that out. Worth a listen, in my opinion, and share your feedback to us on our Slack channel. We'd love to hear uh, what you guys think of our show or any other shows that we guest on uh, as we do guest occasionally on other shows. So check that out at your earliest convenience. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, that's another fantastic week in the cloud. See you next week. See you. Night. Bye, everybody. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.